Blog Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to ACO Watch, a midweek review. We're broadcasting today from San Diego on April the 13th, 2011. I'm your host, Greg Masters, publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com, also known on Twitter as Two Health Guru. This is the 20th segment in our weekly series that monitors and informs the emerging accountable care organization industry. Joining me today is Alan Gilbert, Vice President, Business Development, Access Health Corp., a, un- a unit of Access Group. Access Health's goal is to utilize information and communications technology to improve the delivery of care. For details, check their website out. It's www.axshealth.com. For more information, Alan Gilbert recently published a thoughtful piece titled, quote, Today's MacGyver's Approach to Coordinated Care Technology Falls Short, end quote. So we'll discuss his thoughts thoughts in this piece, as well as the broader trends in the move towards collaborative patient-centered care coordination. Welcome, Alan. Uh, how are you, Greg? And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to speak with you. Um, well, I'm Alan Gilbert. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Alan Gilbert, the uh, vice president of business development of Access Health. Uh, we're the North American division of Access Technology, a company based out of the UK uh, over the last uh, ten years. And I've been working in healthcare and healthcare IT for the past uh, almost almost 21 years, working in academic medical centers, consulting, uh, and health IT vendors. Um, Thought I was going to be a doctor, hit chemistry and biology, realized uh, that wasn't for me, but I wanted to focus on helping helping healthcare in some way, shape, or form, and that's and that's got me to where we are today. Excellent. And where, where, now, where are you located, Alan? I'm in uh, I'm in New York, so I'm on the uh, other side of the universe from from your side of the world. Okay, so you're on that other coast. Very good. So we're bicoastal for this broadcast. All right, now, Alan, um, so that's a little bit about you and the company. Uh, let's talk about this. Um, what is your definition of accountable care? Is it is it the same as care coordination? Is there any difference there? Yeah, so what I, one of my definitions about accountable care is I really believe it's the financial, clinical, and administrative aspects of of, of the care. Um, and, again, there's been a lot, a lot, a lot spoken about it. Um, but the financial side is really the accountable and accountable care, but you also need um, the, the clinical piece, the ability to manage patients across the whole con- uh, continuum of care wherever they're being seen in their community across the country or across, uh, across what they're trying to do, as well as the administrative uh, components to manage uh, how much care they're being delivered, what care is being delivered to them, how and, and when that care is being delivered. Okay. And, and care coordination is really the the components of managing, possibly using a sort of a holistic uh, care collaboration model. So if you have a diabetic patient, what is that care team uh, responsible for? So it's not just a single doctor and a siloed sort of model looking at that patient. It's having the entire care team look at that patient, um, from the endocrinologist to the nutritionist to the physical therapist, as well as the patient together holistically looking at their own at their own care. That that truly is, is care coordination and care collaboration. Um, so that's the sort of the clinical side and, and ACOs and accountable care is sort of the whole look 
about the financial and clinical and administrative side. Okay, so how did you all get started in this particular vertical? Um, we came to, um, you know, a, 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 the accountable care, um, you know, for literally the last 10 years. It's sort of the DNA of our company. Our CEO is um, is a is an anesthesiologist, and he worked um, for about 20 years as an anesthesiologist. And what he learned with working with a lot of the older hospital information system vendors is that they were written in old technology and very hard-coded. So if a new piece of, of discrete data came in, um, these systems wouldn't know what to do with it. So he, had a, he tried to create a system that was this agnostic sort of collaborative platform that would be able to take data in from a variety of sources, whether it's the hospital system, the EMR system, the lab system, the radiology system, um, you name it, whatever the, the data that was out there, and be able to put that into a collaborative platform. And he didn't create a um, just an, a cancer care system or just a diabetes system or just a COPD system because he had to create an agnostic platform that could do all of those. We sort of talk about the flatbed truck where you have all the components of collaborative care, and then one day a diabetic um, payload is going to be dumped on the flat on that flatbed truck, and that flatbed truck drives away. And the next day a cancer care uh, payload is going to be dropped on, and that truck drives away, and the next day a COPD payload. So that's why he created sort of a collaborative platform. And so our experience base is managing um, collaborative care, chronic disease management across communities and, in fact, across entire countries. So you've said earlier collaborative care equals good medicine. Why is that the case? We really think that the sort of uh, what we're seeing in the U.S. of this very siloed approach to care, and everyone, I would tell you, Certainly, if you're a parent, you have it. You know, you you have uh, issues when you need to take care of your children or your elderly parents, and you have to remember to bring the X-rays in and bring the the meds in, and to bring uh, all the different components in that you need to do. So you're basically being your own care coordinator, uh, your own case your own case manager. And it would be much better if all that information was out there in the uh, in the ether for a clinician that's seeing you at the point of care he or she to be able to pull that information down and and have all that information sort of sort of sort of at their fingertips. And that certainly doesn't doesn't happen today and that's what we love to see the movement towards and that's what the ACO movement is all about to 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 move towards that that type of that type of uh, care. So some of this forged over perhaps in a different theater where you have a, a different uh, context for healthcare delivery that being the UK. Some of that expertise was forged there. How are you finding its applicability here in the domestic U.S. market? So it's fascinating you mentioned theater because that's what they call an operating room in the U.K., so that's very humorous. Um, but what we're finding, and again, we know our, our clients are in the U.K., and they're also we have a large project in Canada doing chronic disease management uh, of diabetes also run through the government. But what we're finding is, you know, um, collaborative care is good medicine no, no, matter, no matter where it is. To, to take care of patients in a collaborative manner is, is, is just good medicine regardless of, regardless of what it is. And so the way that you treat a diabetic in the U.K. or in Australia or in Canada or the United States or in Mexico or anywhere in the world, there are international standards of how to treat these diseases. And so what we found, for example, when we when we we've done diabetes over the last 10 years in in the UK, when we ported that diabetes application, you know, we talked about sort of the app store, the diabetic module, um, you know, literally for 10 years before Apple started talking about it. But 
when we took that diabetes module and brought it over to the to the to, to Canada, it was most of the way there in terms of all the components that you need to manage a diabetic in Canada. Now, obviously, there's going to be geographical differences, and someone in America and someone in Canada and some in the UK might treat a diabetic slightly differently. But because there are international standards, there's a lot of a lot of similarities. What's also fascinating is is now the UK and other areas in Europe are, are having a, their own issues in terms of economics and financial. They're starting to look more at the cost. So a lot of the wave that's coming from the U.S. in accountable care, you're now starting to see those kind of wordings and similar concepts to take to look at the financial side of the care that they're delivering. They're farther ahead of us on the on the collaboration part, but maybe a little behind us on the looking at the financial side of healthcare. So it's it's really fascinating that this there's this sort of tennis match back and forth and this sharing of data across the pond. So then tell us a little bit more about this MacGyver approach and why does it come up short in your view? Again, we we come to it where we've sort of created this collaborative platform from from the ground up. And when I talk about the MacGyver approach, and when you look at companies, um, you know, like Medicity being bought by Aetna and now partnering um, with Active Health, and in the last couple of days and weeks, they've actually the folks um, you know out of Aetna and out of out of Medicity are actually talking about how they're going to sort of really put these two two kind of things together. So Medici is really one of the, you know, major major players obviously in the health information exchange market and uh um Active Health is clearly one of the major players in the chronic disease management space. So when you put those two technologies together, the health information exchange from Medici and the Act, Active Health chronic disease management, you really have those those two very powerful things which really focuses on the needs of an ACO. And when we talk about, you know, sort of they're they're going to get there, and other other of their competitors are going to get there, or or see the value of merging the health information exchange data with the chronic disease management data, um, but but they're all not there yet, and, and a lot of times. The, uh, so 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 that's what you mean by a little bit of twine, a bent paper clip, and some chewing gum. <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay, so you didn't invent that concept. There's there's some band aid approaches out there at the moment. Yeah, they're definitely in the MacGyver, and I love to watch the MacGruber on Saturday Night Live as well. That sort of, that sort of, that sort of, mo- that sort of mocks that, that sort of mocks that concept. So, so are they in essence stepping up to to where you're at in terms of the scope of your services? I mean, I think over time they're they're absolutely going to get there. Again, I think right now it's you know they've announced the, they've announced that the companies are being bought, and they're announcing that they're sort of moving towards that. So over time, they will absolutely. I'm I'm sure they will they will absolutely get there, as will a lot of their competitors. Again, typically in the U.S. market, the HIE market has been completely different than the chronic disease management market. Those, they've been focused on different things. The, the chronic disease management companies were typically the purview working with health plans, not as much on the hospital or on the provider side. And the HIE worked more on the provider and and the um, uh, the provider side and on the ambulatory the, the ambulatory side. Um, and now they're sort of the summary's coming together. It was fascinating when when we came to the U.S. almost two and a half years ago. People said, "Are you an HIE?" And it was a very strange question for us, because you know, for us, the health information exchange, the the glue pieces, the plumbing pieces, were the building blocks to be able to get to managing chronic disease. So it was very strange for us to separate those two concepts together. They were all you know in the same pot, as it were. So when people said, are you an HIE, we said, I guess we can do those. We have all those functions. It was weird for us to separate them two and a half years ago. 
So this is just a natural evolution that, uh, uh, against perhaps a siloed, um, disconnected series of proprietary interests who are trying to now say, gee whiz, there's, there, there needs to be some uber aggregation here that makes sense across these silos? Correct. And again, HIEs for the last 20 years have been focused on the connection part, the glue, the plumbing that I'm talking about. Let's mm-hmm. connect the labs and the hospitals and the doctor, the doctor offices and the radiology centers and the e-prescribing data. Let's all connect that together. And as, as we know, that's been talked about on, ad nauseum in terms of, you know, what the business model is and the viability, um, sustainability models for these HIEs. Um, and I really <laughs> think that... Yep. Have they have they done? I mean, have have they talked ad nauseum? What's the state of the market right now? Um, I think there's there there are I think a little bit more viable now because there's certainly funding, so that might push out the viability a little bit. But I really think that the HIEs really need to morph and get into this chronic disease management game, or we've just delayed um, their viability and they'll be out of business again in in in, in short order. So it's not just anymore the connection for connection's sake and then pat yourself on the back. It's all about getting to Don Berwick's triple aim, which is really to, to change the change the way the medicine is delivered and to and to make people healthier. That's okay. what we really So that that gets us maybe to this idea of health teams. The ACO regs talk about health teams. Access Health wrote an article that was published in Corporate Research Group's blog that discusses managed clinical networks. Can, can, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So, so you know, ACO's regular talking about back care teams, and, and in the U.K. they talk about managed clinical networks. And if people look at that blog, they see that um, that, they, that was started back in 1999. So they started back then um, sort, of, sort of talking about the concept of managed clinical networks. And, and what does that exactly mean? And what is the components of a managed clinic, clinical network? Um, one example that we talked about in the article was um, managing patients that got diagnosed with gynecological cancer. So they, we created a technology platform to manage um, across 10 different hospitals the experts who would meet in case conferences every week, either virtually um, or in person, and together decide what the best way to treat these newly diagnosed gynecological cancer patients and then follow them over time and figure out if what they, all 10 of them decided to do worked or didn't work. And they, they, none of them knew who the patients were. It was all the identified data. They wouldn't know if that patient's in their hospital or 10 hospitals away. But all the experts, the, the surgeons and the, and the clinicians and the pathologists and the nurses, everyone that's involved in those care together um, holistically looked at how to, how to manage uh, those patients over time. So, you know, as opposed to one, one expert in a siloed fashion, they had this sort of cohesive way to manage, manage uh, using multiple experts um, to, to, to manage the, the care of patients. And how, how do you enable that, that conversation or, or, or that exchange? Well, we're the technology underpinning, so all the telecommunications perspective, so the ability to to show the video of those four different patients, the ability to show everyone the anatomic pathology slides of where the where the tumor might be, to show them the MRIs, to show them the CAT scans, to show them the uh, pictures of the tumor, for example, to show them the diagrams of the tumor, to show them the tumor board, the tumor registry. So it's the health information exchange component, so pulling all that data together for the specific purpose of managing and treating and identifying 
um, these gynecological cancer patients. So it's a, tele, it's, a, it's a telemedicine component, it's the health information exchange component, and then it's the chronic disease management components all wrapped up together in one. So give us a feel for where we're at. Other than the mature IDNs, integrated delivery systems uh, in the U.S., where is this playing out and how, how's, it, how's it working? I think it's mostly playing out on, on you know, not on, my, not on my side of the world as well. It's playing a lot in, on, on your side of the world out, out, in, uh, out in California. Um, a lot of those, the California, both the IPAs as well as the, the groups of the hospitals, they've been living with capitation so, um, over the last 20 years. So they truly understand the risk side of it. And the clinicians, a lot of the clinicians there are being paid a PMPM, which is a per member per month. Um, to take care of, to take care of their patients, so there's not fee for service for most of the patients out in California. So if you see the patient one time, you make money. If you see the patient ten times, you lose money. So it's in the interest of a lot of the groups in California to really have these care collaboration tools to be able to take care of these patients because they're not getting fee for service. It's not beds and heads, and it's not the more you do, the more you get paid there. So they've really understood the risk and really understood the cost side of uh, of care um, care there. And if by some stroke of luck ACL regs were to disappear, uh, would this change anything? <laughs> I would tell you it doesn't. I mean, I don't care if they're called ACOs or PCMHs, the patients that are medical homes or EMRs or EHRs. To us, it really doesn't matter what the what the acronyms are. Collaborative and coordinated care is, is just is just strictly good medicine. Um, so regardless of whether the, they're paying Medicare differently, I really believe that hopefully this is open Pandora's box that all these groups can work together for the for the for the point of managing better care. And as we talked about, we hope that patients aren't managed differently. You know, a doctor can have Medicare patients and commercial patients. The hope is not that they don't manage their commercial patients different than they manage their Medicare patients just because their the Medicare patients happen to be as, as part of the ACO. We hope that this sort of uh, leaks into all the way that they deliver care to all their patients, not just the, specifically their Medicare patients, for example, as it related to the ACOs. That just makes sense, that there's not <clears throat> two separate standards of care regardless of the payer. So do you think the ACO regs are going to survive intact? Um, I, I really, I sure hope so, because I really think they're they're a step in the good direction. I, I did read, uh, I think today, yesterday, that a lot of the cuts they were doing in the government, they didn't touch the high tech cuts. Um, I know they were, you know, how they were talking about, you know, closing the government and all that, and they did some cuts. So high tech didn't get touched. So I really hope, um, you know, this doesn't get touched as well, because I really think this is a, a truly a movement in, in the in the right direction. Do you want to take a stab at for those who are not uh, who don't live and breathe this stuff day in and day out? Do you want to talk about uh, some of the da the dynamics that are moving us in this in this direction? You know, high tech being one, the move towards electronic uh, health records, meaningful use, and ACOs. Can, can you connect those dots? I would just say, as we all know, that the you know the the gross the amount of of money we spend in healthcare and the as part of our gross national product I forgot if it's 13 or whatever it is but whatever it is is just a massive massive um, percentage, and I think there is just finally this realization that we have to do things we have to do things differently um, across the way the way that we treat care and you know at some point 
I think what they're seeing is hopefully, you know, there's with the with the with the backlash of the 15 years ago about managed care and you being told where you have to go and where you have to be treated, and I think um, now they're trying to take with the ACO movement, hopefully, and, and EMRs is trying to take the 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 best of managing the cost side of care and also trying to give people more choice, but also trying to do things better to treat chronic disease and, and the like. So you think there's a uh, there's <clears throat> there's purpose in this tapestry we're we're watching uh, being woven at the moment. I I do I do believe I I do believe there is and again I think cost is the very the very big driver for it. I think that's you know cost is one of the reasons they put the high tech money out. It wasn't just to give every doctor the the 44k. The point of it was was if you give the doctors the 44k and they have the EMR systems and they have better access to data. Um, that they won't order that second lab test. They won't order that second X-ray, and that's what's going to lower the expenditures because they had, you know, millions and millions of not I forgot billions of dollars of savings that they expect to gain out of this. So this wasn't just a one-way street just to give doctors uh, access to to this money for EMRs. The real hope was that they'll be able to um, uh, save dramatic amount of money for that. The issue is if you just do an EMR in in general. One of the things that the meaningful use regs tour I tried to approach is there had to be interoperability, which gets to the HIE component. Because EMRs on their own, if you just create an e- have an EMR and you put it in your office and you don't connect it to anything, you haven't done very much. So to the extent you connect it to the labs in your area, to the, con- to the extent you connect to the, um, uh, the e-prescribing in your area, to the, to the effect you connect to the local imaging centers in your area, to the effect you connect to the hospitals in your area, that is the way that you're able to find out about the care that's delivered elsewhere. That's the way that an ER physician, um, when they see you or I walking into that ER, once they register us, a request can go out to the community and say, have you ever seen Alan Gilbert before? What meds is Alan Gilbert on? What's Alan Gilbert allergic to? Um, what recent lab test has been on Alan Gilbert? Because right now, whether I come in unconscious in, you know, in a motor vehicle accident or wherever, however I come in, they don't have any, very, very little, if not any, information from me, unless I've been in that hospital recently. Without that, they have very little information on me. And uh, let's talk about from a completion event going from where we're at now in this disconnected world to where we want to be, you know, three, five years down the road. You know, where are we in percentage terms? I mean, I think we're just, we're really just taking the baby steps. We're still just taking the baby steps on the EMRs. We're still taking the baby steps on HIEs, and we're about to just ta- start taking the baby steps on, on the ACOs. I just, I was just talking to someone uh, this morning from a large consulting company who said, I think the regs said that, you know, that they base this on, you know, there's only going to be maybe 75 or 100 um, different ACOs, which is only a couple hundred thousand, close to, you know, a million sort of folks. Not, not, not huge numbers. Um, out there, so I, I think the first year is going to be sort of a learning, a learning curve, and see what's happening. And I think the people that are going to be those ACO pilots either have already started them, or 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 are, you know, are large, and, and will start them very very soon. Um, are you, you know, are you are you engaged in any pilots at the moment? Yeah, well, a lot of our clients in California. I think I mentioned. Um, our, our, our IPAs, they're at-risk IPAs, so they take risk on behalf of an insurer, and they already have our health information exchange um, platforms built and live, and the next step they're doing is to move towards the accountable care model. 
um, you know, in, in their areas, whether it's partnering with the health plans, whether it's partnering with the hospitals, whatever it is to part with whoever, to partner with whoever is in their 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 areas, their regional footprint, to be able to manage care better with all their um, the people in their environment. So, so let me think out loud a little bit here. So, as we look at the ACO regs, they, they're they're written to try and reach into mainstream medicine, typically for the Medicare patient. They're, they're really designed to pull, you know, uh, independent physicians uh, into a what amounts to over a three-year period a graduated risk um, uh, environment. You know, years uh, one and two. There's no downside risk, but it's a three-year commitment, and in year three, there is an actual downside reconciliation with, I believe, years one through three. <laughs> so so if you're an internist, primary care physician, you're getting, and you have an active Medicare practice and you elect to get involved in an ACO, you're really on a path towards integration. You're really on a path where you're starting to be concerned about things like PMPM per member per month and you then look at uh the 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 challenge and, and the services that companies like yours offer inside of that challenge with through a different lens which is a population management lens is is that a fair characterization Absolutely, and again, those those positions usually aren't independent because you need you know the five thousand uh, Medicare lives, so they're usually part of a group. So it's whatever that large IPA or that large hospital or that large plan is deciding to do as part of the entire group, and you sort of get swept up uh, in in the wave of that in the wave of that group. The, the, the regs are similar to I don't know if you if you watch how the meaningful use is. It's the same kind of carrot and stick where they give you the carrot for three years or or five years and then hit you with the stick. And the component, you know, the question is how bad is the stick when, when it comes down? Um, I know a lot with the EMR, you have a lot of these um, doctors who are near retirement that say, look, you know, I don't need an EMR because I'm going to retire in three to five years. And even if, I'm, if, I, if I get the get the stick for a year, it's still 2% or something. It's not, it's not going to really affect me dramatically. So you might find people... Um, um, you know, sort of looking at these ACOs. I, I forgot what you did in your last one of your last um, uh, one of these last sessions, but you you talked about ACOs not being for the faint of heart, or you know, it's not for tire kickers. No tire kickers. Was, what, 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 what Vince talked about. So mm -hmm. these really these ACOs really have to be for people that um, that the, the groups that really are aligned with these missions, really are aligned with the triple aim, really are aligned with changing care. Um, and, and being able to move forward in that respect. And, of course, um, <clears throat> IPAs are, unless they've gone the step to uh, full integration, they're, they're typically still tethered to independent, physicians in independent practice. And, and, and presumably one of the value adds of the IPA or the management company who supports the IPA is to begin to present them with this, this evolving world of, uh, of risk and what it means for them, how they participate with one another, how they practice together, and so forth. So can, can you – do you have a thought? Could, can um, physicians who are active with Medicare just kind of pretend this isn't happening and just avoid it to their own advantage? It's, it's really hard to tell. Again, I think they'll be swept up in a group, you know, because, again, a lot, of, a lot of the independent physicians are now moving towards groups for, for a variety of reasons. Um, to be able to, to, you know, to, to survive. Um, they're being picked up by hospitals. They're being picked up by insurance companies, lots of different ways 
that they're sort they're sort of going. So um, you know, individual PCPs are are especially for these ACOs are being pulled in a lot of different ways and are really um, suggested to, you know or 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 coerced and coerced to really you know want want different groups really want these PCPs and PCPs weren't wanted before and now all of a sudden they're the bell of the ball. So you're finding that they're the most receptive audience for 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 the products and services that you have to offer right now. Yeah, yeah. What we're finding the people that are the most receptive are the people that understand. You know, the, the groups in California they already understand the risk components of it. I think the rest of the country is going to have a harder time in the whole fee for service, bed for head kind of concept because for them this is doing something a little bit antithesis to what they've done. Um, and, you know, the hospital administrators are worried about, you know, they'll have less admissions and what will that impact to their bottom line and all that. So they have to sort of get get over that. So to the extent people that have already understood th- that they have to move towards this, that they understand the concept of blended payment of risk, those are the folks that, that we're starting to talk to. And you're and you and you help them in what way at this point? Well, we work either directly with them or through, you know, their sort of consulting companies that are out there. There are a ton of companies, as you know, that are popping up. Um, I forgot what they said about, you know, this being a consultant's uh, tremendous opportunity. There were a couple articles about that. Um, but um, we're working with them about how, what are the tools, what are the components that you really need to form an accountable care organization from the technology perspective? Because it's not just getting back to the MacGyver piece. It's not just having the health information exchange and the EMRs out there because that, that really just won't get you there. I mean, you need the analytics component. You need the ability to, to manage and report on what it is. You need the health information exchange components, which is all the data sharing. You need whatever EMRs are out there in the community. Um, but to the extent there's no EMRs in the community, hopefully either the HIE or the ACO can be that essentially that EMR light, which is that aggregated view uh, of all of that data for a doctor that doesn't have an EMR. Because, you know, in most of these communities, you'll have a percentage of docs that will have something, and a vast majority of them in that in that given community don't have anything today. And so you have to have a way to be able to handle both of those components. So are you, in a way, serving as kind of a system architect here or, or connecting these pieces or, or, or what? Certainly a system architect from the technology perspective, certainly working with either the consultants or directly with the clients on, you know, what are the governance issues about these ACOs? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, um, um, how do you let p- patients opt in or opt out of the ACO, just like how do you let patients opt in and opt out of the HIE, just like we all over the past time had to sign a HIPAA confidentiality agreement, which said that, you know, this information can be shared with my doctor and anyone my doctor sees that is relevant to my care. So from our, our point from the technology perspective, it doesn't matter to us how the governance is. Our technology can morph to meet whatever those those requirements are. Mm-hmm. And we also work with things like... Um, you know, we work with things like break glass functionality. So you can imagine that you have patients that have mental health data out there. They have communicable disease data like AIDS and all those other things. So you have to have a way that you have a way to what they call break glass, which is to say, let's say you're in an ER setting, an ER doc needs to know, oh, look, there's this other data on this patient. I'm seeing this patient who's either unconscious or I need to emerge to make a decision. It's very important to know that patient has has AIDS or might possibly have a communicable disease. So I break glass and I say I need to access this data for the next hour, for the next six hours, for the next day. 
but then after that, I don't get access to that data. So that's another component of this to be able to understand it because, again, now you're dealing with this care across the community concept. So you have to have all the right people to have access to that care in a secure fashion. And how engaged are physicians in this conversation? Are you mostly dealing with managers? Um, they're they're all over the they're all over the board. But we're we're usually dealing with the people that are aggregating these groups, and then some of them are docs as well. So, you know, one of the folks you had on the phone before was uh, was Wayne Pan, who's the chief medical information uh, officer uh, of Health Access Solutions and, and the chief medical officer of uh, PPMSI, which is a, uh, a management service organization, and 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 folks like that. So. Um, the people that are aggregating the group, which are both clinicians as well as administrative people together, the people that really get it, whether they're on the health plan side, whether they're on the hospital side, whether they're on the large physician group side, that's who we're typically dealing with. They sort of come in those three categories. And is this a siloed conversation, or is this bridging or reaching out into the community of of um, of Heretofore, potential uh, competitors who are now looking at their market in a more collaborative way. Yeah, it's, it's thankfully the people that we're talking to are more strategic and really see the value and see they they want to form this and they and they they have already talked to their business partners or plan to talk to them or uh, so so they've they've absolutely started those discussions and to the extent we've already done a lot of that with the with the health information exchange at least with our current clients we've already had a lot of those discussions. So we've already connected to the lab cores and quests on the lab side and the e-prescribing data, and we've connected to the imaging centers before, and we've connected to the people that are scanning the old medical records and sending them in and the, and the, peeps, the, the vendors that are sending their trans, transcribed data in together. So in a lot of respects, the HIE component, to do that first, you've, you've talked to a lot of these business partners. You've talked to the hospitals that they're working with. You've talked to the payers because you're pulling in their claims data as well. So in a lot of extent, the HIE components, the, the, the building blocks, have allowed you to start those discussions to happen that only blossom more as you move towards the ACO discussions. And, and where are you finding the most receptivity here? Is it in California or are you working elsewhere? We're working all over the country, but to the extent, I mean, there are a lot of groups that are, that are doing that. You know, Premier has um, some ACO readiness collaboratives. Um, you know, they have groups that are, that are they're doing that. A group called AMGA has has groups out there. Um, uh, the, Don Borwick and, and some of their folks uh, at Brookings and Dartmouth they have their own pilots out there. So there's a lot of different folks across. I would say all those three sectors that we're having discussions with. We're having discuss, discussions with payers. We're having discussions with large integrated delivery networks. We're having discussions with large physician groups. So cutting across those, cutting across the entire country. A lot going on, as we can tell from that last statement. So you mentioned payers. Where are they at in this process? You know, payers are are, are really waking up to this concept and realize, you know, we talked to a payer who said, look, if I don't do anything, and this is a major payer in a major state. They are the major provider. And they said, look, if I don't do something about this, we'll be out of business or we'll be dramatically different. I mean, we, we've, we've, um, we've talked to some of the folks that – um, a payer in the Northeast, and they have created an entire division just to focus on ACOs and medical homes. So this is an entire new vision, division over the last year, and they have multiple ACOs, multiple medical home pilots. They're actually putting their, their, their employees directly into the, into the physician groups, the physician offices. 
So there's no more calling the, you know, calling the health insurance company and waiting on online for two hours. That person is literally in your office. And and so that you know, to the extent that helps with the care collaboration, to the extent that helps that the payer is closer aligned with the provider, to the extent they're able to together holistically help with care, um, we'll see if that model changes. But your typical provider um, payer in the past, I think, is morphing and going to be very different. So, so if I were to let me ask you if you could just distill it down to the key drivers for a care collaboration model versus the business as usual environment we're in today. What what would that minimally require? Uh, minimally, you need a care collaboration platform, and that is the technology platform to manage that that care team, that diabetic care team we talked about at the beginning here. So. Whatever platform that is, is to be able to manage the diabetic educator and the nutritionist and the physical therapist and the endocrinologist and the patient together in a care team. So that's one of the first major components. And, again, the data that you're getting from that is coming from the HIEs that are already out there. It's coming from the EMRs that are out there. It's coming from the hospitals. It's coming from the labs. So all the data is feeding from existing places. But the ability to have that care collaboration platform, that's one of them. The second piece is to be able to have security-based and role-based access control because, again, we're now moving from security and access in a local, in your local doctor's office or your local hospital, we're now moving that security and access across the region, meaning anywhere Alan travels and looks at his COPD or his cancer care or his diabetes data, that whole care team can have access to that data. So that's the second, second part. And the other part is to have uh, what we call a clinical care process modeler, which is to be able to model any clinical process. They talk about in the ACO regs, you need to have the ability to manage an individual care plan. So how do you model a process specific to that patient? So you do a generic thing for diabetes, but then how do you manage Alan's or Tom's or Fred's diabetes specifically? And is there, do you do something different for type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Do you do something different from adolescent versus pediatric versus adult diabetes. So you need to be able to tra- change that male and female, whatever it is, whatever the characteristics are. So I would think those are three of the, the major components, the multidisciplinary team approaches to care, the, the ability to do security-based, role-based access control across the region, um, and the ability to do the clinical care process modeler. But also one, one more thing that's components of this is the analytics, the ability to do um, real, real-time analytics. So the ability to, you know, the instant that diabetic pricks their finger, the entire care team gets to see that. Now, if it's just a regular, you know, reading, obviously no one's going to read it. But if there is a high, you know, a high blood sugar and that, and that in, in the record says that you need to do something about that, someone in that care team will get that, get that alert and then instantly care that, call that patient back. That's what we mean by that, that alert and notification. It's alerting a patient that is um, just went into a, a Planned Parenthood or another kind of kind of clinic that they need to come back and and get their AIDS or their chlamydia or their other kind of testing. So that's another way about about alerts. So those sort of four components. So who's so. who's putting this conversation in play? Is, is it a local IPA? Is it their management company? Is it their hospital system a health plan company like yours? Who who stimulates? Who, who's the conduit here for the conversation who begins to build this stakeholder participation? I think this is coming from the board on down in, in the hospital side, on the payer side, you know, and, and 
this is coming from the top down, I think, in a lot of these organizations. And as well, I said, you know, there are consulting firms out there, the, the large the large integrators and other folks are really or have, have are proactively reaching out to these places. You know, I've been in sales calls and I hear the meetings before me as a webinar from a major com- company, you know, introducing this concept out there. So, you know, this didn't exist nine months and a year ago, as, as you and I well know. You know, we didn't, no one knew, no one knew what ACOs were. Um, and all of a sudden, the world now knows, knows, now knows about this. A year ago, all we talked about were EMRs and meaningful use and a little bit about HIEs. And now everyone is talking about care collaboration. All of a sudden, this is in the lexicon. I mean, if you went, you know, you and I went to HIMSS this year, everyone was talking about ACOs. There was the first time there was even a you know, conference within a conference on ACOs. A year ago, everyone was talking about HIEs. A year before that, everyone was talking about EMRs. So this is truly, um, you know, permeated into a lot of people's sort of thought process um, all, all throughout organizations that this is something that, that really, you know, needs to get done. Do you find this uh, uh, intense compre- this intense interest uh, now is stimulating um, some of the IPAs that were formed years ago that may have been somewhat dormant uh, in in the post-risk pushback period? Yeah, again, certainly in California, you know, there's about 150 large physician groups, and a lot of them are working with um, a group called CAPG, the California Association of Physician Groups, and they're sort of the aggregator, and they, you know, they, they work in California and in Washington about regulations that help, you know, physician groups in general. And, you know, they're really looking at, you know, they already have, they're working with capitation, and they also have already, for the, most of them, you know, had a lot of the care management and utilization management applications running for the last 10 or 15 years that the rest of the world hasn't, the rest of the country really hasn't had. So they have a lot of the ways to manage uh, the, the, the risk and the cost sides of care. Um, and now they're really looking at how we just layer on top of that these collaborative care tools. Because right now if you ask most of these groups, how do you manage a diabetic, they'll tell you, well, we look at two-month-old claim data. Well, we would tell them, well, that's two months too old. We want to be able to give you technology tools to have you look at that diabetic data. Literally, as I, as I mentioned before, the instant that blood sugar is pricked and Bluetooth up, you, you're able to see it. So you're able to do interventions and bring those patients in earlier and, and really treat them and, and stop their disease or, or, or vastly limit it. I mean, again, you'll have patients that are noncompliant, but for the most part, if you can do things to bring those patients in, if you can also do analytics to try to find patients who don't even know they're diabetic, for example, and bring them into the fray, they may be morbidly obese or might have other other risk factors, to the extent they didn't even know they have diabetes. I mean, I had a friend who was thirsty all the time and didn't correlate it forever and then finally went to a doctor for a physical and was told he has diabetes. So um, people don't, you know, sometimes don't even know that they have it. Um, so to the extent that the systems are able to do that, that gets you back to better care, that gets you back to the triple aim. Obviously, real-time analytics are better than lagged analytics. So in the remaining moments we have, Alan, is there anything else you want to bring forward uh, about uh, this particular conversation, how people might, uh, if they have an interest in pursuing this directly with you, how they might contact you? Yeah, again, they're welcome to come to my my website, uh, accesshealth.com. You can just um, send us an email at info at accesshealth. Uh, We blog at uh, access underscore health, um, very active, and we follow uh, Greg's uh, blog postings uh, very carefully, very religiously every day. So we'd welcome to uh, have discussions with anyone as it relates to those, and they can connect with us in those ways. 
So thank you very much, Alan. Very interesting and informative conversation. We'll look for more from you in the future. Uh, obviously, uh, it's an increasingly fertile um, uh, environment out there for what you do and, and how these entities can actually organize and meet these standards, which are still somewhat uh, evolving under this comment period for the rule. So I want to thank my guest, Alan Gilbert, Vice President for Access Health. And I would like to also uh, uh, mention that we do these programs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. So please join us next week for another installment in this journey down the rabbit hole of health system redesign. We'll continue to spotlight market movement, attempt to track and recap sentiment during the ACO rule comment period, and assess where we stand and I like the Gartner inflated expectations versus trough of disillusionment cycle idea, given the fact that we're moving towards integration and not everyone's on board. Uh, in, uh, very reluctantly, many physicians seem to be getting involved in this conversation. So once again, I want to thank Alan for his time today, and please join us next week, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Thanks again. Bye now. <laughs>